You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide variety of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and sometimes more than a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. This is episode number 228. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cam- Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 27,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Behind the Times Biden doesn't want anyone in his administration to invest in weed. Shareholders of the Jay-Z empire can go apeshit over SPAC deal. Banks opening up to cannabis businesses. Ex-Diane Feinstein staffer hotboxes her office. What about the children and many other frosty nuggets? So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, director of operations at LB Atlantis, and an important advocate for the plant. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates, and she is show Google for us here. What you got today, Nicole? Uh, Thank you so much for the lovely introduction, Susan. My headline today comes out of Politico, and it is kind of coming as no surprise that Biden admin says to applicants, maybe don't invest in weed companies. Uh, I kind of find this funny. So the, the headline is in regards to the fact that the Biden administration recently put out a um, information and shared it with Politico. They did a um, an educational thing for the uh, administration as well as applicants, letting them know um, that if you are invested knowingly, literally says knowingly in the cannabis, that you likely won't be able to be on the administration. So, smoking weed may no longer be the only potential impediment to getting a job with security clearance in the Biden administration. Investing in cannabis companies could now trip up applicants too. 
Eligibility may be negatively impacted if an individual knowingly and directly invests in stock business ventures that are specifically pertaining to marijuana growers and retailers, according to the document that was released to Politico. Discussions to willingly invest in such activity could reflect in questionable judgment and an unwillingness to comply with laws, rules, and regulations. The recently updated guidance is the illustrations of the federal government trying to grapple with its cannabis-related HR policies as the product has become an acceptable legal business medication, and recreational substance in states all across the country. All told, 37 states, the District of Columbia, and some territories have legalized cannabis for medical and adult use. The White House has adopted a more forgiving posture than its predecessors. Early on in its tenure, President Joe Biden issued a memo that stated prior marijuana use would not automatically disqualify applicants. The most lenient policy for the administration since before President Ronald Reagan. But he hasn't altogether been forgiving. Last year, the White House did fire some employees and rescinded employment offers due to prior marijuana use in the early days of his administration. According to the internal presentation, the White House has not changed its position despite its calls from Democrats to do so. I even say some Republicans are saying it too. The growth of the weed industry has presented additional complications. The new clarifying guidance was presented in the memo to the agency heads in December from Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, as GovExec reported in January. The presentation noted that any marijuana-related investments through diversified mutual funds that is publicly traded in the U.S. exchange should be presumed to have been made unwittingly? question mark in my mind at the same time the presentation ended with a warning graphic that states not knowing is not an excuse <laughs> the new guidance also states that investment in disassociation or willful direct investment in such activities should be considered a mag mitigating factor as the guidance has worked its way across the sprawling executive branch it has annoyed some members of the Biden administration who think the rules are quite antiquated and so do i well, what isn't clear, however, is which marijuana stocks the White House is referring to. American companies are not traded on the U.S. exchange because they are not federally legal companies. Instead, U.S.-based marijuana companies trade on the Canadian Securities Exchange, which is stupid. A lower-tier stock exchange in a country where the cannabis is federally legal. Any cannabis companies traded in the U.S., presumably, exchanges are either selling only legal CBD products, questionable, again, question mark, or the manufactured selling marijuana in a country where it's federally legal, like Canada. So that's the most ridiculous part of my story, I think, is the fact that we're actually allowed to do that. Anyways, Biden administration is making a stance in modernizing their language through the White House, risking sending contradictory message, messages, the guidance says that not knowing the rules is not an excuse. But the uh, um, adjudicators should consider whether this individual is knowingly facilitating violations of the Controlled Substances Act. I think it's kind of interesting. Cannabis activists have often referred to Biden as being behind the times on cannabis policy. And I'd say a lot of people are saying that he's behind the times. 68% uh, of all Americans, including 83% of Democrats, support federal marijuana legalization. Deschedule or bust President Biden. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I think Joe Biden would respond to you saying that by, huh? Or busting. What do you mean the story? This is so hypocritical. It's it's subtle legal theory, guys, that, you know, ignorance of the law or the rules is not a defense. So that they're just building on that. But I'm not saying it's right when they allow investments in other types of exploitative industries. I'm just saying. Multiple members of Congress have invested in cannabis stocks. So this is just so hypocritical. I think that it's actually going to 
give a little bit more of a push for the deschedulization. I think this is actually strangely enough kind of positive just because there is so much financial upside that some of these people are going to be able to attain. I think that, you know, the continuum of follow the money, I think this might actually give a little bit of push in, in the actual deschedulization. I think this, this is something that controlling whether or not people are able to invest in things that might potentially make them money, um, might change things. I wonder how many uh, con- congressional billionaires are going to be made off of uh, investing in cannabis exactly. stocks next year. Well, they, I, I actually Crazy. oppose their ability to invest in anything that they're voting. I think for. everybody does I, except I for them. They did after they voted in favor of the Moore Act last year. Yeah. Nicole, uh, I do not share your optimism that this is going to move anything forward. I think Congress is going to continue to do what they want, investing in what they want. This is only going to hurt. You know, Joe Schmo, who decided to invest in some stock who can't get a job. This isn't going to touch anyone uh, higher up. I totally agree with you, Gretchen. This is not going to affect anyone's policy change or anything whatsoever. It's just going to be more of the hypocritic, same old thing out of the Biden administration. Out of any administration, for that matter, honestly, I really don't think that it's Biden specifically. This is something that is you know, in the way of like the the government as a whole, I don't think that it would be any different under, you know, Republican. There has been no Republican that has stated that you cannot invest in the stock market and still be part of the team. (laughs) Unfortunately, unfortunately, maybe they should. So what you're saying, uh, um, Jason, is that uh, Republicans have no morals. Yeah, exactly. Well, is that because Bill Clinton has all the orals? <laughs> okay, we're going to keep on Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. He's also the patriarch of dad jokes on the show and keeps things spicy. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Oh, yes, Susan. Mine's coming from Allison Franco over at Reuters. Delaware court rules shareholders of cannabis company in Jay-Z's empire can sue over DSPAC deal. SPACs, The shady blank check company deals that gained popularity at the beginning of the pandemic, allowing companies that would never pass SEC muster to go public in any other format, proven to be crazy lucrative from fund managers and directors while pretty much guaranteeing shareholders take an L. Gotta love capitalism. Delaware's Chancery Court ruled for the second time in the last two months shareholders can indeed sue board company members for breach of duties in DSPAC deals. On Monday, Vice Chancellor Morgan Zern refused to dismiss a lawsuit brought on by shareholders of Jay-Z's Left Coast Coast Ventures, uh, which was acquired in 2021 by the SPAC cleverly titled Subversive Capital Acquisition Corp. Get it? S-P-A-C? Nah? Okay. Subversive partnered with Sean Corey Carter, a.k.a. Jay-Z, to form the parent co. Uh, Per the article, Zern ruled left coast shareholders could pursue direct claims against private equity fund fireman capital partners llc and three left coast board member affiliates including principal dan fireman excellent name the suit alleges fireman capital provided a crucial loan to left coast while negotiating while negotiating its complex de-spac deal with subversive shareholders alleged board members tied the fire uh, to firemen allowed the fund to capitalize on obtained leverages as left coast creditor, including 
majority control of the board, a proxy for more than 80% of the company's voting rights, in addition to last-minute amendments to Left Coast's debt instruments. The amendments effectively allowed firemen to divert $40 million from subversive takeover from Left Coast shares and option holders. According to Reuters, the complaint does not uh, detail the DSPAC merger terms, but according to defense filings, Subversive agreed to pay about $142 million to Left Coast, while Left Coast simultaneously agreed to pay $76 million for the acquisition of another cannabis company. Hmm, MedMen maybe? Parent Co. defense lawyers moved to dismiss the lawsuit last July, arguing shareholders were asserting derivative claims that belonged to the company, not direct claims on their own behalf. A key distinction in cases alleging breach of duty in M&A transactions, as shareholders from target companies have no rights to assert post-merger. They argued Left Coast founders benefited happily and quietly from the merger and are alleging the last-minute amendments diluted shareholders' stake. But any dilution would be pure suffered by left coast and not stockholders. That's what they said. The dismissal, the dismissal motion pointed to Delaware Supreme Court precedent from 1999's Parnes versus Bally Entertainment Corp., which held shareholders must allege a merger was unfair to or, uh, in order to assert a direct claim arising from it. The Parent Co. legal team argued uh, left coast ventures, uh, left coast shareholders did not claimed the merger itself was unfair, and the DSPAC deal was a synergistic opportunity to create long-term value. In Monday's ruling, Zern undertook a lengthy analysis of Parnes' ruling and subsequent Chancery Court interpretations of it in the context of mergers that include side payments to share, uh, certain shareholders. Uh, Vice Chancellor discerned the three-part test for those allegations. The side deal gave rise to the direct claim. A side transaction must divert merger consideration from stockholders rather than uh, from the acquirer. Uh, the diversion must be improper, that is, the product of misconduct by the defendants, and the diversion must materially affect the merger's process of the price, calling the merger's fairness or vid- validity into question. It passed all of those tests. Left Coast shareholders' allegations for the article, Chancellor Zern said the sh- shareholders claimed that firemen improperly hijacked merger negotiations and threatened to derail the SPAC's acquisition of the company unless the board approved debt instrument amendments that benefited the fund. The $40 million Uh, Allegedly, the $40 million was allegedly diverted to firemen and uh, was material in a deal valued at $120 million to $130 million, and the amendment's timing indicated that the money would otherwise have gone to Left Coast shareholders. Zern's the second Delaware judge to allow shareholders to go after directors over DSPAC deal claims in the last two months. Could we be seeing the beginning of the bursting of a spectacular bubble? Nobody saw this shit coming from a mile away. This is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad in these L.A. streets, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I love to hear what y'all think about this one. SPAC anybody? The big implosion of SPACs, bro. I mean, at a certain point, had to Go ahead, Nicole. At a certain point, it had to happen. The blank check idea for a bunch of businesses, when you're looking at a lot of the businesses that have gotten SPAC money and not to be like a dick, but like half of them didn't fucking deserve it and were just going to poorly utilize it. And there's a lot of these SPAC companies are not properly managing and doing the right due diligence to ensure that it's happening. They're just rolling around because they have a certain amount that they have to spend by a certain time. So, I mean. No brainer. It was going to happen eventually, yeah. but it sounds like I we got I got Oscar there early, so I will uh, go ahead and jump to our next correspondent. Unless anyone has a comment, yeah, I was just going to say really real quick, like most of them have like two year runway to actually say what they're really going to do. 
<laughs> so you're just giving people money and hoping that they make money off the money you gave them. A lot of them are cannabis companies. <laughs> so SPACs are built for oh, yeah. Chads and Brads to get a shit ton of money and fucking go cry home to mommy and daddy afterwards about how they lost all the money. What a great way to segue into Mr. Jason Beck, the international man of mystery who finds a way to get higher every day. He's always willing to be the elephant in the smokiest of rooms. Longest running retailer in U.S. history. What the fuck do you have for us today? Oh, yeah, Nicole. Today I have some spice. Where a fired former Diane Feinstein staffer entered into a senator's office and smoked a blunt in smoke-filled insurrection. That's right. Jamarcus Purley, a former staffer who was fired from Senator Dianne Feinstein's office, entered the U.S. Capitol and smoked a blunt in the California Democrats' office. Purely a former uh, legislative correspondent who worked for the senator since February of 2017, was terminated from Feinstein's office on February 8th for repeated performance issues. His termination letter, which was posted on his Instagram using the alias Rocky Guerva, G U E. V-A-R-A, which I encourage people to go and check out, uh, says, Dear Jamarcus, due to repeated failures to performance the duties of your job, communicate with supervisors, appear in person or in virtual meetings for work, or appear when directed to discuss problems with your job performance, the office of the Senate of Dianne Feinstein is terminating your appointment effective immediately. As you are aware from past discussions and correspondence, you have made numerous significant mistakes over the past year in office to include ignoring emails from groups in your portfolio, routing failure, route routine failure to write constituent letters, and send other letters without following the office protocols for review on multiple occasions. Under his rocky Vera alias, he posted a video on YouTube last week of himself smoking a blunt in Feinstein's office, proceeding to dance and jump on couches as he continued to smoke cannabis. Purely also posted the video on Instagram describing how he entered Feinstein's office despite being terminated from her office and smoked cannabis. The post has, has since been deleted. In a quote, he says, I hate this fucking country with every fiber of my existence, so I'm really out here just staining the fuck out of y'all. So I took some shrooms yesterday and had a major discovery. I realized that the funniest shit about the U.S. government is that I can just put on a suit and walk straight into the U.S. Capitol and smoke a blunt in Feinstein's office, even though I was fired two weeks ago and walked straight out that bitch because I went to Stanford, Oxford, and Harvard, and therein lies the problem. He claimed Feinstein helped orchestrate the war on Ukraine because our office got so much fucking political pressure from Rathian, Lockheed Martin, etc., during her re-election campaign in 2018 based on her age. In, the, in his Instagram post, which contained his termination letter, purely disputed the termination, saying, we are about to put this on repeat and protest the fuck out of all four offices in California until Diane get the fuck out of there ASAP. You know exactly why this narcissist fired me. If y'all really gave a fuck, quit your job and stop leaving this shit to black people. Feinstein's office did not respond to a request for comment regarding this incident, but I'll tell you what, Diane Feinstein's always been a fake fraudulent senator for the people in the state of California. She got elected off the backs of the HIV and AIDS movement off of the death of Harvey Milk and has never done anything for the cannabis industry whatsoever. 
And when I've talked to other lobbyists that that work with Senator Feinstein on different issues, uh, they used to I, I used to say, hey, you guys make any progress in Feinstein's office? And you know what the progress they came back to me was? Yeah, we got her to remove the DEA uh, museum pamphlets from her office. Get the fuck out of here. Diane Feinstein fucking kick rocks. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. <laughs> Yo, anybody who has not seen that video, please watch that video. Like, I would never condone like like doing shit like that in the place of work. But when it comes to uh, career politicians that don't do shit for the people, this guy's a fucking hero. (laughs) Straight up. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I don't uh, condone what he did either, but I think it's quite poetic given that Diane Feinstein stated that she was for cannabis to get reelected, then promptly dropped it from her platform. After she got reelected, she has been in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry for years. And Jason's talking about the thousands or a few million that these cannabis lobbyists are spilling onto Congress. The pharmaceutical industry spent about 60 million in the first quarter of 2021 alone. So they, they don't have anything. These cannabis lobbyists don't have anything on the pharmaceutical industry. When, when, when I first started in San Francisco, um, I had a patient, a very older woman by the name of Judith Kushner, and she was very well-respected uh, woman in San Francisco, San Francisco politics, and was a constituent of Dianne Feinstein's, and she was dying of cancer and was very ill. And uh, the letters of support that she wrote to Dianne Feinstein encouraging her to come out and support medical cannabis was met with a letter basically, uh, basically telling her to go fuck herself. I'm sorry you have fucking cancer, but I'm not going to do shit for you on cannabis. Happy Clubhouse birthday, Dr. Felice. Thank you. End of time for that story. And I, I really hope that guy wins a uh, congressional uh, a, a medal of honor. <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> actually, he actually should get a butt, an, a butt of honor. And I would be happy to gift him some of the best weed in the fucking world. Dude, uh, how, Jason, get him on the show. We want please. him on the show. Jason, we fine. need him. We need him. We need him more than any, any guest we've ever wanted in our lives. Please. Stat. I will oh, reach out. So. <laughs> Up next, coming straight out of the longest of all beaches, he's the CEO of Fruit Slabs, a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, and has a beard game that some might describe as way strong. He's also a cannabis. Oh, I already said that. <laughs> coming to the stage is Long Beach's man of mystery, Mr. Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks for having me today. My headline is Mad Men wins $612,000 legal fee clawback from former CFO, as reported by Law360. That's right. Former Mad Men executive James Parker must repay Mad Men over $612,000 in legal fees that he was advanced as part of a wrongful termination suit. MM Enterprises USA LLC, Mad Men's business entity, sought to get back the fees it had advanced to its former CFO. In a November trial, Parker lost all of his claims, and MedMen prevailed on some counterclaims, which led to this demand for return of money. The jury found Parker breached his employment agreement, but also that, he bre- that his breach had caused no damages to MedMen. But the jury's ruling nullified Parker's contract and its legal fees advance, so the judge determined MedMen could recover all of the legal fees that they had advanced to Parker. It all stems from Parker's 2019 suit that he filed against MedMen, alleging a kitchen sink of claims where he said he was forced to resign because of a toxic environment where he felt compelled to resign over concern about exposure to criminal or civil liability. 
This is from a man who chose to work for a cannabis company. Parker admitted that he had reduced his duties after he discovered that MedMen was trying to replace him, which was in itself another contract violation. The Santa Monica jury ultimately found that MedMen did not constructively discharge or breach Parker's contract and awarded him no money. And they also found that Parker breached his contract and wrongfully took proprietary information when he quit. Part of what informed the finding of Parker's breach was that he failed to give a 90-day notice that he was quitting and that he also stole trade secrets when he went out the door. The judge said, quote, since Parker materially breached his employment agreement, MME USA was relieved from its advancement obligations as of the date of the breach. And then the judge ordered the 2019 and 2020 legal expenses that were advanced to Parker to be repaid. My opinion is Parker just sounds like he is morally and ethically bankrupt. He appears to be a certifiable Chad who thought he could get rich off cannabis just by joining someone's team without shouldering any real risk and while he simultaneously chose not to do some of the exact work he was being paid to do. I think this is a great verdict and I hope he pays back every penny and interest to MedMen because we all know MedMen needs that money. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. I can't believe you're rooting for MedMen. <laughs> but. I think he's sarcastically rooting for MedMen, right? <laughs> there was sarcasm in his voice. Yeah, I'm not really rooting for MedMen, but I'm also not rooting for executives who cry wolf and say, oh my God, I got into the cannabis industry and I'm facing <laughs> risk. Are you a moron? Yeah, cannot agree with you more on that, Brandon. Like the idea that somehow the liability of said risk was on the company in the reality of it happening uh, didn't come before they accepted such a fucking big ass salary job. Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. We've got Warren up from the audience. Warren, did you want hey, to? Hey, that's my in? boss. Hey, boss. <laughs> I actually thought Parker's claims were credible. Uh, I read his employment contract and I read the lawsuit and it was sounding like they were wanting him to do some untoward uh, financial dealings uh, when it came with their public stock uh, trades and options. So I I thought his claims were actually legitimate. I'm really surprised that the Santa Monica jury found uh, him with zero claim and zero win. I I think his theft of trade secrets and that it was provable kind of made him a very unsympathetic plaintiff. An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Yeah, don't steal people's shit, period. Karma's a Yeah, bitch. absolutely. All right. Well, it sounds like we are uh, running out of comments on that one, but it's super interesting. Let's keep following that as it develops. There's anything more that comes from that, because I feel like it's not the end uh, for the lawsuits coming at MedMen. But up next, we have Miss Maggie Wilson. Maggie's the first black female sommelier, best-selling author of the Metaphysical Cannabis Oracle deck, debuting in the Hash Museum in Amsterdam and Spain this summer, and the CMO of Fruit Slabs. And one badass babe. What do you have for us today, Maggie? Hey, Nicole. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for that awesome intro today. So today I've got a story um, bringing you a lot of stories from the UK because it seems like they're stuck in the, you know, about 100 years ago. So dad to miss birth of his first child after cops find 10,000 pounds worth of cannabis in his car. This is by Isabella Bates coming from Birmingham Live. Two drug dealers have been jailed. Two drug dealers have been jailed after they were caught by police in a car with a kilo of cannabis. Jack Griffins, 25, and Jordan Bailey, 26, were in a car stopped by police in January 2020. Alongside the drugs, with a street value of up to 10,000 pounds, which is 13,000 U.S. dollars, cops found scales and bags. Bailey himself had 
2,500 pounds, which is $3,333, shoved in his pants, and police seized over 4,500 pounds, which is $6,000, in total from the pair in Staffordshire. Now, Griffiths, whose partner is expecting their first child, has been in jail for 14 months, and he's definitely going to miss the birth of his child. I don't really understand how he has been able to get his wife pregnant, but we'll get to that later. Bailey was sentenced to 21 months. The prosecutor said they were both involved in, quote, heavy-scale dealing. Bailey supplied Griffiths, who supplied 20 to 30 people on the street. A kilo, recovered in one, a kilo was recovered in one day alone. He added that the police went to Bainbridge Road in Trenum at 8 p.m. on January 15, 2020, after, rec- after receiving reports of the men wearing dark clothes looking at cars. Mr. Wallace said they saw a black Ford Fiesta pulling off onto Brook Lane and it was stopped and the two defendants were inside the car and there was a heavy smell of cannabis in the car. They found a substantial quantity of cannabis in various amounts and packages. Some appeared to be in a two ounce bag, an ounce bag, a quarter of a kilo, a quarter of an ounce. And there were sets of scales, rolls of plastic bags, 35, uh, 3,500 pounds roughly, and their phones. In total, the police recovered 935 grams, which is 32 ounces of cannabis, and 1,000 pounds, which is just over $1,300. An analysis of the phones showed Griffiths was was selling in various quantities on the street. Bailey's phone showed he was dealing in large quantities such as 500 pounds, which is $666, or 2,800 pounds, which is $3,700 roughly. Mr. Wallace said Griffiths said he bought about 300 grams from Bailey every week. He said he dealt to 20 or 30 people a week. All of the men pleaded guilty to being con- uh, concerned in the supply of cannabis. This is just another crazy story that shows the prohibition of cannabis may be moving forward in places like Costa Rica and Thailand, but it seems like the UK really has a long fucking way to go. And this is Maggie reporting from Long Beach for the State of Cannabis. I definitely want to say that I was confused in the beginning, and it's because the American standard system is fucking whack. And when every time you kept saying pounds, I was like, that's a lot of weed. And then I was like, oh, she's talking about fucking UK dollars. Yeah, that's why I put the money. I was like, this is going to be too... Mm -mm. I was struggling. I was struggling. (laughs) I was like, wait, 2,500 pounds. And I was like, oh, wait, that's money. Like, wait, wait, how many? Oh, wait, that's money again. (laughs) And the thing is, they only recovered 32 ounces of cannabis. And this man's been in prison or in jail, in England jail, for 14 months. Like, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. English jails are not no joke, man. That shit is Mm -mm. real. Mm -mm. No joke. It's ridiculous. There are tons of murderers and serial killers and rapists and all this other shit that happens that they don't get as much time as someone who goes to pr- goes to jail for cannabis and it's really fucked up. Yeah, and the gun laws are so fucked up. I'd rather be shot to death than stabbed to death, straight up. Hey, also, Maggie, the math. You're right. He's been in there for 14 months, but his wife's pregnant. Exactly. What exactly? Excuse me. I'm, what about the children? Oh, you know what she been doing? Those conjugal visits got real calm. I don't. I don't think. I think you are not the father. <laughs> Call Mari. Yes. Pull out game. Wait. And to that, I say, what about the children? We're at the half hour mark, so we're going to relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers.
Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. So this badass cannabis mom is the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of Ca- uh, San Francisco, Cannabis Law Section, founder of San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, and the organic source of the silkiest, smoothest <laughs> vocal cords in the Western Hemisphere. Mm, amazing. Up next, we've got Lara DeCaro. What you got for us today, Lara? Hi, Rico. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, It's always good to have you intro me. My story is out of South Africa. It's titled, The lawyer representing the Minister of Justice and the Correctional Services has told the Constitutional Court that it's not rational or fair to impose criminal sanctions on children, again about the children, for the use or possession of cannabis. This is an article by Jeanette Shabalala. Might have missed a couple of lalas in there for News 24. It's entitled, so apparently the Center for Child Law wants their highest court to confirm that children don't uh, don't belong in jail for possession or use of cannabis, right? But don't think that they don't want to stigmatize these children nonetheless. The lawyer argued that there were less restrictive ways through the Children's Act and Substance Abuse Act to deal with children found in possession of cannabis, though she did say that criminalization should not be the option because it's, quote, not in the best interests of the child. Oh, this is actually a legal phrase used in connection with a lot of juvenile adjudications, um, and it's often just sort of thrown around as a, a, a catchphrase. The real irony here, though, is that juveniles are being charged with criminal offenses in a place that has decriminalized use by adults. So this particular case actually arose out of four children in Krugerstorp, which is a suburb of Johannesburg, who tested positive for Dhaka at school. Um, That Dhaka is uh, cannabis in South African slang, I guess. Um, The kids agreed that they would undergo diversion programs but apparently didn't go. So they were then referred to the Department of Social Development, where probation officers recommended that these children be subjected to a compulsory residential diversion program for an unspecified period of time. The article does not say how long the children were held, but it does say that they were released in February 19 following a high court order in relation to incarceration of minors for offenses like this. Uh, So now that high court order has to go to the Constitutional Court for review and determination uh, in South Africa. And, you know, we're still seeing, um, you know, fights against uh, the rights of children to, I guess, you know, lawfully participate in the cannabis market. Um, But it's also, I think, an issue that's more in relation to how do we deal with children who are in possession of cannabis, um, not, not on a medicinal basis, right? How do we address minors in a way that doesn't subject them to forcible detention. My name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about all that. I feel like we need a Sally Struthers commercial after that, that just for the price of a copy, cup, cup of coffee a day, you too can save the children. <laughs> yeah, right? It seems, yeah, it, it's, it seems like a, a strange argument to be having, but, you know, it's, it's really not because, I mean, really we're dealing with children who tested positive for an unlawful 
use, right, an unlawful substance when it comes to their their status as minors. And we're always discussing how we treat minors differently from adults, but this is just another example of of ways that we do that. Maybe Look. maybe we just do maybe just we just do away with jails and prisons altogether, just sanction the shit out of everybody. How about that? Just... Well, I mean, what's the what's the diversion program, right? I mean, are they putting them in a rehab? Are they locking them up in a? No, nah, you just put them in debt for the rest of their lives. Demand their families. I I think what the first thing you should do when people when kids are using cannabis is to look at the home and see what's going on in their lives. You know, you know, yes. m- most of the time they're but they're self medicating because of stress or anxiety, depression, uh, autism, whatever. You know, it's like look at what's going on in the home and give them help keep them with their families and give them help yeah yep. keep their families that really concerns me because i mean which one of us did not smoke weed in high school raise your hand <laughs> i didn't uh, oh, yeah, i people. actually didn't either i was told i was allergic so i'm i'm just a rare one i don't i don't know if the shit that i was smoking would be considered weed by today's standards <laughs> I did not, and I still don't. Uh, I'm allergic to booze. Same. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much for that headline, Laura. Um, And yeah, definitely, that's very concerning. Me taking them out of their families' homes as just that interaction. I, I don't I don't know if I agree with that. Um, but up next, we have Priscilla Agoncillo. Priscilla was one, voted one of the top 25 women in cannabis-making history. And she's also the CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League. What do you have for us today, Priscilla? Thanks, Nicole. Uh, my story is pot cook gets burned. Man seriously injured in Pittsfield hash explosion. So uh, this story is about a man from Pittsfield extracting cannabis in an underground lab lab using volatile gases and nearly blew himself up. The explosion happened on February 21st on Keeler Street in Pittsfield. Now, a survey of the property uh, on online mapping shows it was just uh, an industrial building in the middle of a cluster of old brick mill buildings uh, that had, you know, various different companies around it. The state fire marshal Peter Ostrowski said in a statement that gas is used Um, And these processes are highly flammable. If they accumulate in an enclosed area, the small spark causes a devastating explosion. Uh, Propane, butane, and similar substances without proper safety precautions are illegal to use because they're extremely dangerous. Even storing them improperly is a danger. Um, So this man rented the building to perform unlicensed cannabis operations. The man tried to cover his tracks following the explosion because he was already checked into the hospital before authorities even learned of the explosion and fire. A state police fire and explosion investigation unit was first made aware of the incident Tuesday by a report through the Massachusetts Burn Injury Reporting System. So that's how he got caught and linked to that explosion. The system requires hospitals to notify the state fire marshals of burn injuries that extend over 5% or more of the victim's body. Also discovered on scene, large number of cannabis plants that were taken uh, from the site, cannabis products, and a lot of plastic containers. Here on State of Cannabis, we've covered 
I think pretty much almost every illicit cannabis extraction lab explosion that we've been seeing in the news. And I feel like it's almost about monthly that something like this happens. This is just another example of an avoidable tragedy in extracting cannabis. It's a serious process that requires training and proper equipment, especially if you're using volatile gases. This is Priscilla reporting for the State of Cannabis. For all you home-blown labs out there, just remember, no electronic devices, no open flames, nothing that creates a spark. Allegedly, don't don't teach them how to do stuff like that. That's the safety. I would say. You don't want to brew kombucha nearby either. Yeah, right. This article is so pejorative. I mean, this this the down to the headline: pot cook gets burned. I mean, come on. Um, it just, you know, it, it, they need to outline the difference between different you know, methodologies. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Laura. I mean, it's it sounds like it, the cannabis industry is blowing up stuff instead of uh, the illicit market. Right. Like, I would be far more concerned having a meth lab in my neighborhood than someone extracting hash oil or, you know, whatever, bubble hash. I mean, think about all the different ways you can... Bubble hash is one thing, but I'm going to say this is like a really unfortunate... As a a child who grew up with a meth lab in my house um, that was raided when I was 12 years old and also somebody who has uh, been working in the extraction area for about 10 years, I'd say they're equally as dangerous in like real terms. I mean, minus the fact that people cooking meth often are on meth. Outside of that, as far as the actual volatility... (laughs) Um, the, the minus the use, and there's definitely some people that are cooking meth that are not using meth, but the actual uh, danger factor, um, and from a scientific level, Laura, it's the same. It's no, the same. I know, but I'm, what I'm saying is that there I are think it's- ways to, they, you know, they need to, I think they should have done some differentiation. Between there's just not enough education in, in general. Nobody knows the difference in most yeah. of these. Like, like cops are calling it like honey oil still, you know? And I'm pretty sure yeah. statistics show that uh, meth labs are in your neighborhood. Uh, 100%. And also, too, just to, just to speak on all of this extraction, I think it's important to know for people in their communities that the same equivalent can be found in regular businesses as well, such as like auto body shops yep. that paint, paint cars and things like that. They have all the same type of explosive uh, materials and can easily have an explosion just as easily there as in... As in a hat Absolutely, lab. but doing it in your garage as far as painting a car, you know, and doing all of those extra things would not be ideal, just the same as doing a, a, an extraction lab with volatile chemicals in your garage either. Moral of the story? It's all the same. Meth is bad. Don't blow yourself up. Don't be fucking stupid. Yeah, meth is bad. That's definitely a good moral, Rico. Yes, it is. <laughs> so up next, she's a pot-loving PhD pushing for common-sense cannabis policy for everyday people and an outside-the-box activist who remains optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Up next is Manika Mahajan. What you got for us this morning, Manika? Hey, Rico. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Today I am reporting from Kyle Yeager, and my headline reads, More Banks Report Working with Marijuana Businesses as Pressure Builds to Pass on Well, the headline's a little confusing here. As Pressure Builds, I believe this is supposed to say, for Congress to pass a reform bill. The number of banks that report working with cannabis businesses has gone up um, towards the end of 2021, according to newly released federal data. That increase may have been related to congressional moves to pass bipartisan cannabis banking through the Safe Banking Act, but the figures from the FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, signal that financial institutions continue to feel more comfortable servicing businesses in state legal markets. 
As of September 30th, 2021, 755 banks and credit unions had filed the requisite reports saying that they were actively serving cannabis clients. In the previous quarter, that number was 706, and it had peaked at 747 in late 2019. While there's 2014 FinCEN guidance in place that's supposed to help financial institutions navigate the space, lawmakers want to give them clear statutory protections and believe that would be accomplished through bipartisan legislation known as the Safe Banking Act, which stands for Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act, that has cleared the House in some form six times now. Until then, the banking sector is reluctant to serve businesses that work with a Schedule I controlled substance, and that's reflected in the relatively low number of depository institutions that take on cannabis clients. 2020 saw a significant and consistent drop in the number of banks and credit unions that reported having cannabis clients, but those figures started to stabilize last year. At the end of September 2021, there were 533 banks and 220, uh, I'm sorry, 202 credit unions that reported having active clients. Uh, from the cannabis industry, according to this federal agency. There are some pretty cool graphs in here that sort of show the uptick. So you can take a look at those if you click on the pinned link. And as far as where safe banking stands, we've talked about it on this show numerous times, but it's stalled in the Senate under both Republican and Democratic control. Senate leadership has insisted that comprehensive legalization should advance first, although Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, has more recently signaled some openness to passing a banking bill as long as certain equity provisions are included. And Rep. Ed Perlmutter, a Democrat of Colorado, is the sponsor of the Safe Banking Act, and he believes that it, he's confident that the opposite chamber will finally take up reform before he retires at the end of this session. I We've reported on this a number of times. I'm curious what you all have to say, but my question is, do banks really need cannabis advocates to be lobbying for their protection? I, my understanding is that this is a pretty powerful interest group. So every time I kind of hear about this conversation, I, this is what I think of. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Pass safe banking already. Was that Jason or was it our soundbite? Exactly. Same thing. Jason's a bot. That's no, that you aren't fake news, Rico. <laughs> what was that? I said no, that would be Joe Biden. Are you a Russian bot, Jason? Gretchen, save um, me. I, I don't, Minica, for your question, I don't know about what, if banks are actively act, are, uh, advocating for safe banking. The largest group right now advocating for it would be the National Credit Unions Association. Credit unions want this to happen. Banks got plenty of money as is, the, the big boys, so I don't think they really care one way or the other. And if the big boys are banking with you, I do know some larger banks that have banked with people, but they're just killing them on fees and such. So they don't care if it's, you know, if it, if it, if passing safe banking will lower their fees, they're probably not the most in favor of it, but they don't care. They're getting their money either way. Credit unions are the ones who are actively out there lobbying for this right now. Pass safe banking already. Fuck safe banking. Oh, man. All right. Well, I think we are at time on that headline. Thank you so much uh, for that, Minica. Um, and up next, we have the governor, the raptivist, Black Panther Party, California organizer, former candidate of Fullerton City Council, Fresno mayor and governor Nicholas Wildstar. What do you have for us today? <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. What's up, State of Cannabis lovers? It's National I Want You to Be Happy Day, and there's nothing that makes me happier when government takes less money out of the pockets of we the people. 
That's why I'm glad, very glad, to talk about my article from the Green Bay Press-Gazette today, which brings to light how Green Bay moves to no longer find people for marijuana possession if they're at least 21 and it's not too much pot. Weed, devil's lettuce, bud, ganja, jazz, cabbage, and kush, laughing grass, chronic, sticky, icky, no matter the moniker, as more states explore legality, Green Bay officials have approved an ordinance that eliminates the fine for marijuana possession with some caveats. The decision to lower the fines to zero, but charge $61 in court fees for possession of 28 grams or less of cannabis, breezed through city council in a unanimous vote that took less than 10 minutes to pass. It faces a second vote at the next council meeting before the revised ordinance takes, takes effect. People who are 21 or older will be allowed to possess up to 28 grams of marijuana in private or in public unless they're driving. They can smoke in private, but not in public, including in a parked vehicle under the ordinance. Obviously, there was no consideration for those who opt to smoke in their own car during the winter instead of standing out in the cold. But those who are caught using cannabis in public may be slapped with the citation costing anywhere from a dollar to five hundred dollars although the municipal court may trade fines for community service. The current maximum fine for possession of 28 grams or less is already $500, so that makes no sense either. It's a different game entirely for those under 21, a point that council member Chris Wary made sure would be revised. Before the council voted on the $0 fine, we asked city attorney Joan Bungert to change the language of the ordinance to address penalties for those under 21 in possession of cannabis. Weary suggested that the ordinance mirror language similar to that of underage alcohol offenses. Fines for underage alcohol use, according to Wisconsin law, fines can range between $100 to $1,000 for subsequent offenses in a year. The act of mirroring the underage alcohol possession and or consumption amendment doesn't fully jive with cannabis possession. City Council member Bill Galvin brought to the council's attention that under Wisconsin's law, it is legal for underage teenage drinkers to drink alcohol in the company of their parents. I want to make sure that we're not saying kids can smoke dope with their parents, Galvin said. The council agreed to strike that exemption from the amended ordinance. Parents and teenagers in Green Bay will not have lawful opportunities to get high together because Big Brother won't let them. This is yet another half-assed bullshit piece of legislation, and as a native Wisconsinite, I believe voters need to protest against it, but as the saying goes, it's better to get something rather than nothing. This is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. The Governor, reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Here's a great story, Governor. Um, I think we're we're still we're still reaping the uh, the benefits of Scott Walker leaving office and and, and pretty much neutering uh, whoever came after him and they're gonna continue to suffer that and the industry's gonna suffer because of it too. It's just stupid because they still charge fines, but yet they're saying they're reducing the fines to zero. <laughs> you still got to pay court fees. You can still get cited. Stupid. Stupid. Shout out to Wisconsin though, man. I got some really good friends up there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting that we're having so many conversations around the globe about, you know, how do we really face uh, underage use 
um, whether approved or disapproved of by the parents and how do we handle it in the community. It's nice to be having that discussion in, in some sort of intelligent way, even if it's not going the direction we want it to go just, just right now. Well, just honestly speaking, do parents have a choice since they are adults to make their own choices or are they being told by other adults what choices to make? The well, plot thickens. I know, right? Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's still against the law for juveniles to consume alcohol or cannabis or tobacco. Not if they matter. have a recommendation from a doctor. Right. Not if they have a recommendation. Or very right? Well, they should be under supervision by a health care provider. And I just have a recommendation. Yeah. Who's recommending the doctors doctor. give recommendations? That'd be the state of California, Rico. Indeed. But not too many. Not too many. <laughs> so up next, she's the founder of Panoptic Strategies, a staunch supporter of safe banking, and a self-described feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots, never too scared to spar with cannabis-loving libs across the aisle. Coming to the stage next is Gretchen Gailey. Great story this week, by the way, uh, Gretchen. It was a very good reading. Oh, well, thank you, Rico. Uh, my headline is coming from Marijuana Moment. Missouri lawmakers demand Biden act on marijuana and address racist double standard that kept Shikari Richardson from the Olympics. A pair of Missouri lawmakers on Tuesday filed resolutions urging President Joe Biden to end marijuana criminalization, provide executive relief to those caught up in the drug war, and condemn what some view as racial disparities in how athletic organizations apply drug testing standards. Missouri has become a hotbed for cannabis policy reform efforts in recent weeks, with lawmakers introducing proposals to legalize marijuana at the state level, while activists continue to work to put the reform on the state's 2022 ballot. As those broader policy proposals move through the process, Representative Dottie Bailey has put forward a resolution that condemns the decision by international sports associations to ban U.S. sprinter Shikari Richardson from participating in last year's Olympics after testing positive for marijuana while this year allowing a Russian skater to complete to compete despite uh, testing positive for a banned performance-enhancing drug. Richardson herself said she felt the decision-making in the separate cases spoke to a racial double standard, and Bailey's resolution agreed that this double standard is indicative of extreme anti-American and racial bias. The measure calls on Biden to end the domestic prohibition against marijuana, support our American athletes, and condemn the racist double standard that kept an American Olympic qualifier from competition for marijuana use. It further calls on the House clerk to prepare the resolution to be sent to the president and congressional leaders upon passage. Separately, the chair of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus, Representative Ashley Bland Manlove, filed a resolution that more broadly addresses the need to end cannabis prohibition and provide executive release to those caught up in the drug war. Her measure cites campaign promises Biden made to decriminalize marijuana, expunge prior convictions, and take steps to legalize medical cannabis. It also references a letter sent to the president signed by members of the Missouri legislature and led by activist Weldon Angelos that demanded mass pardons for people with federal marijuana records. The resolution reiterates that call. It says that Biden should grant a general pardon to all nonviolent federal marijuana offenders and work to uphold his campaign promises of decriminalizing cannabis, generally and legalizing cannabis for medical purposes. These measures were introduced weeks after a Republican Missouri lawmaker unveiled a bill to tax and regulate adult use marijuana in the state. It would provide opportunities for expungements, authorized social consumption facilities, and permit cannabis businesses to claim tax deductions with the state. Representative Ron Hicks filed the omnibus legislation titled the Cannabis Freedom Act. He sent a memo to colleagues that the measure was drafted in a way that thoughtfully incorporates elements from every marijuana bill filed this session to create a free 
but tightly regulated market for illegal marijuana. Meanwhile, another Missouri Republican lawmaker is again pushing to place cannabis legalization on the ballot, but some activists aren't waiting on the legislature to take action to refer the issue to voters, with one campaign officially launching signature gathering in January for a separate reform initiative. Representative Shamid Dogan recently pre-filed his joint resolution to place a constitutional amendment on legalization on the 2022 ballot. I say congratulations to Missouri for taking a stand and trying to uh, push Joe Biden to do something about this uh, ridiculous injustice. Um, I don't know if it's going to go very far, um, but I, I like that people are standing up and talking. And if you don't stand up and say something, nothing ever happens. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. Well, I don't think that Biden's going to lift a finger to legalize or re-legalize cannabis. I, I think if Congress put a piece of legislation on his desk that he would not veto it. He's Biden not- has, to sh- he has to save his energy. You know, he, he struggles lifting his, those fingers. I was going to say, Biden struggles to get out of bed in the morning. So, you know, him actually signing something is a whole nother, whole nother to do. If, if only he wasn't so tired from all the mess that he inherited from the last administration. It's so... He inherited a thriving economy, a robust country, tons of jobs, and fucking tanked it. I gotta give, I gotta give like massive props to Dr. Felicia on the on that clap back right there. I've been waiting for that. Yeah. Does I'm debating truly if Shikari has a case though. I mean, the yes, the it seems on you know face value that you know she was um, discriminated against, but again, she didn't fight it. She didn't try. Um, So I don't know if that argument can be made. I mean, we need to remember, too, we're talking about someone who was one of the authors of the 92 crime bill and and doesn't give a fuck about we just told people in his administration that they can't even buy cannabis stocks. We really think that he's going to help out Shikari Richardson. He's not going to do anything. Regarding uh, um, Richardson and not fighting back, you you don't know what you don't know. She didn't come from privilege, probably. And you, you may not know that you fight stuff. You get an attorney and you fight. Sometimes you don't know. I agree, Dr. Felicia. I think she had terrible advisors. I don't think she should have said, I'm sorry, and fallen on her sword. I think that's bullshit. Uh, This Russian figure skater, they fought it. They wanted a hearing to keep her going, and they took a different route. Also, legal representation isn't cheap. Don't we know that? We're at time. Sorry, the 60 minutes just really flies by. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay here on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day and bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show with me. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears. When there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Bye, bye, bye. And think is better than better.